listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. Happy 20th episode, listeners! As a special thank you for sticking with me this long, and just to get a little silly, this week will be a very special episode on kaijus. Kaiju, from the Japanese word strange beast, is a Japanese film genre that features a monster or monsters engaging in destruction, usually of major cities, and the response of military forces or other monsters. Kaiju films are a subgenre of the tokusatsu or special effects film genre, and chances are, whether you realize it or not, you've probably seen a film that can be classified as a kaiju film. Recent examples include Cloverfield, Pacific Rim, Godzilla, and the recently released Kong, Skull Island, which I will hopefully see this weekend. Kaiju films are great fun, and whether you're rooting for humanity or the monsters, there's something viscerally satisfying about watching giant monsters crash through buildings like they're made of cardboard, which, in early kaiju movies, they may have been. So this episode will go over some classics such as Godzilla, King Kong and Co., and some new favorites, such as the Cloverfield monster and the kaiju in Pacific Rim, and how portrayals of kaiju are evolving to make kaiju scary again. One could argue that it all started with a big, angry gorilla. King Kong, who first appeared in a 1933 movie, is one of the oldest known monsters technically classified as a kaiju. King Kong is originally portrayed as a giant prehistoric ape, similar to a Gigantopithecus, with his size ranging from 18 feet tall to 50 feet tall. King Kong is portrayed as having semi-human intelligence and great physical strength, which he needs to survive on Skull Island, an isolated pocket of ecosystem that still plays host to dinosaurs, marine reptiles, and other prehistoric creatures. King Kong is captured by an American film crew and brought back to New York, where he escapes and goes on a rampage, climbing the Empire State Building to protect a human woman he's formed a bond with and inevitably being shot down by fighter planes. Depictions of this creature have remained largely the same throughout the many remakes of the movie, with the only tweaking really being height and degree to which King Kong resembles a silverback gorilla. King Kong is unique in this genre in that, unlike monsters such as King Ghidorah, Godzilla, and Mothra, King Kong is not motivated by an external driving force. His driving forces are internal, his own will to survive and to protect the actress he's bonded with. He's not running around the city to destroy the planet, or seek revenge, or protect the culture. He's running around destroying things entirely because of his escape from captivity, and because of this, King Kong is almost solely portrayed as a tragic anti-hero. King Kong's human-like features and sympathetic motivations are unique among kaiju, but this giant gorilla, it could be argued, was the face that spawned a thousand monsters. From video game antagonists such as Donkey Kong, to a film in which Kong and Godzilla go toe-to-toe, to scores of giant prehistoric monsters rising from the depths of the earth, there was a sudden cultural shift, an insatiable desire to see more really big monsters break stuff, destroy cities, and maybe teach humanity a lesson or two in humility. King Kong may have king in his name, but the kaiju genre would be nothing without Japan's scaly sweetheart. Also called the king of all monsters, since their appearance in 1954, Godzilla has been a villain, a hero, and a neutral force of destruction throughout their long film career, and has represented a metaphor for nuclear weapons, 
the United States, Japan's forgetfulness of its imperial past, natural disasters, and the overall human condition. That's a lot for one aquatic reptile monster, even if they are gigantic. Also, when I refer to Godzilla, I will be using gender-neutral pronouns, as the original Japanese films take great pain to give Godzilla gender-neutral pronouns. And, after Son of Godzilla and the 1998 film in which Godzilla lays eggs, calling them he is just silly. The monster's original name is Gojira, which is a portmanteau of the Japanese words gorira, meaning gorilla, and kujira, meaning whale. It's thought that this name came about because in one planning stage in the creation of Godzilla, the creature was described as, quote, a cross between a gorilla and a whale, which, honestly, doesn't seem too far off. Godzilla's character was originally conceived of as an amphibious reptile monster, based loosely around the concept of a dinosaur. The dinosaurs used to create the look were a T-Rex, an Iguanodon, and a Stegosaurus with the Stegosaurus's backplates being modified into rows of serrated back fins to give Godzilla a distinctive, more aquatic look. Godzilla's skin texture is another unique feature of this monster, and was inspired by the keloid scars seen on survivors in Hiroshima, further emphasizing this monster's ties to the atomic bomb. Godzilla's origins remain vague except on one point. Godzilla has originally been an iguana, or a prehistoric sleeping sea monster akin to the Lovecraftian Deep Ones, but wherever they start out, the catalyst for the original rampage is being disturbed and subsequently souped up by exposure to nuclear radiation. And let me tell you, if you think Godzilla's signature atomic breath weapon is cool, that's not the only souping up I'm talking about. Various films, TV shows, video games, and comics have also given Godzilla an electric bite. Magnetism eye beams, precognition, and flight. That's right, in the 1971 film Godzilla vs. Hedorah, Godzilla flies. Yet despite Godzilla's connection to the atomic bomb, appetite for destruction, and ridiculous slew of powers, Godzilla has become a beloved cultural icon. In 1996, Godzilla themselves received an MTV Lifetime Achievement Award, and in 2004, Godzilla received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame to celebrate their 50th anniversary film. In April 2015, to encourage tourism, the Central Shinjuku Ward of Tokyo named Godzilla an official cultural ambassador, and Godzilla received a residency certificate. Some people, skeptical of the sea monster's commitment to being an ambassador, pointed out that the Central Shinjuku Ward has been flattened by Godzilla in no less than three Toho movies. I, for one, suspect someone's a little jealous. And if that someone is one of the many, many other kaijus created during the rise of the kaiju film genre, I can see why. Mothra, King Ghidorah, Gamera, and Radon were all also popular kaiju during their time periods. And while Gamera retains some small popularity today, Mothra, King Ghidorah and Radon are largely forgotten by the general public, recognizable in name only like old gods. It's a sad day when a giant moth, a three-headed golden space dragon, and a pterodactyl just can't make it in Hollywood. Forget La La Land, if you want a movie about unrecognized actors struggling to get by, just put these three on screen. And this fall from grace is largely because, well, these monsters were just too large. Even during the height of popularity for the kaiju film genre, 
the size and abilities and motivations of these creatures were always a willing suspension of disbelief. King Kong has survived so well partially because he is essentially a giant gorilla, and people can relate to a gorilla. They've seen gorillas in action. They can imagine how a gorilla would react to being taken against its will to an unfamiliar place. It's more difficult to relate to, say, a giant moth that loves Japan, or a pterodactyl that symbolizes the nuclear threat of the Soviet Union. As time went on, big rubbery monsters that shoot lasers became less and less relatable. Luckily, there's been a recent move to revive the kaiju film genre, and give these monsters a much-needed update. Enter Cloverfield. In 2008, a film was released that, arguably, was more horror film than kaiju film, and did such a good job of burying the lead that many non-horror fans failed to realize it was about a giant monster. At least at first. Using found footage recorded using a handheld, the film documents a giant monster attack from first person doing an ingenious job of making the threat feel not only authentic, but terrifyingly vague. The characters don't know why a monster is attacking the city. New York is shut down, and no authorities or heroes come to the character's aid. The monster itself is barely even shown in the movie, but the threat that its mindless, animalistic destruction poses is a constant presence. And it is animalistic. The primary creature design artist for the movie, Neville Page, stated, quote, that his central concept for the Cloverfield monster was that of an immature creature suffering from separation anxiety. This was meant to recall real-life circus elephants, who sometimes get frightened and lash out, such as the 1994 incident in Honolulu, Hawaii, with a circus elephant named Tyke. And while the Cloverfield monster's appearance was otherworldly, this motivation for the attack was believable, lending a much-needed element of realism to the movie. This desire to create believably unbelievable kaiju, and to make the threat of city destruction more frightening and personal, is a new drive that will hopefully breathe life into a genre that's kind of lost its horror elements over the years. But of course, not everything has to be gloom and doom. Maybe all the kaiju genre needs is... more dynamic music. And robots. Enter Pacific Rim. Released in 2013 by director Guillermo del Toro, Pacific Rim is a kaiju film that also manages to be a mech film and a sci-fi film. Set in the future, this film has kaiju being created by an alien race, and sent up via a portal at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean to destroy humanity. This film was meant to be a descendant of the original kaiju films, but puts a new twist on it thanks to a few important elements. The film never takes itself seriously, thanks to giant robots and the use of neon colors, the soundtrack is exciting and dynamic, and the kaiju, the literal classification for the monsters emerging from the ocean, are indeed strange beasts, but with conceivable biologies and biological mechanisms for their powers, such as Otachi's acid spray and the goblin-shark-like head of the kaiju knife head. This film remains true to the kaiju premise with monsters on a mission to destroy cities, but the monsters are colorful and otherworldly, and the film brings a much-needed human element. And the film brings a much-needed human element, giving us human characters with complex backstories that we can invest ourselves in, while at the same time giving us an array of monsters to delight in, but not necessarily sympathize with. Hopefully, this film, and its upcoming sequel, will prompt many more films 
and we can all sit down and watch some cool giant monsters destroy our civilization time and time again. I think we've earned it. Well, that's going to do it for Kaiju. I hope you enjoyed a movie-centric episode about giant beasties, and if you're curious about any of these movies, please check the show notes to find out more. Intro and outro music is by Scott Ethington. Also, I'm still looking for someone who has a bit of audio editing experience and would like to help me add more music and stuff to the podcast. So, if you're interested, please hit me up at monstersadvocatepodcast at gmail.com. Lastly, if you like what you heard, please rate and review on iTunes. Or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster. Thank you.